Listener Production. Are zoos and aquariums good or bad? I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing, a podcast about the science of everything. It's an incredibly polarizing question and can cause some pretty passionate pleas from both sides of the fence. But is the answer really that black and white? Today, I talked to Cosmos Magazine journalist Emma Perfetto about the arguments for and against keeping animals in enclosures and whether zoos and aquariums can really serve an animal's best interest. So, Emma, we've had a few crazy things happen at zoos around Australia recently. What's been going on? Yeah, so a few things have happened. Back in November, a group of lions escaped from their enclosure at uh, Taronga Zoo. I do remember (laughs) hearing about that and thinking about going to the zoo the week after and then going, no. (laughs) That was completely wild. It was all over the news. Um, So it was five lions four cubs and an adult male lion. They'd like clawed at the fence of their enclosure and then managed to like squeeze in underneath it um, to like escape. Terrify, terrify. <laughs> um, so understandably, the zoo went into lockdown mm-hmm. and fortunately no one was hurt at all. The lions were, you know, returned to their enclosure. None of them were hurt either. But that's also not the only zoo drama that has happened recently. Just last week, here in Adelaide Zoo, a school student uh, actually climbed into the giant panda enclosure. Um, So apparently he'd dropped his phone in there and then decided (gasps) that it was a good idea to go and like retrieve it himself, which I don't understand how. That's insane. But again, no one was hurt. Good. The zoo staff were able to retrieve the student and neither of the pandas were impacted Sure. Okay. I mean, so so I guess it's sort of unsurprising that kind of after incidences like these, we see the age-old debate get reignited around the pros and cons of zoos and other animal enclosures like aquariums, like hmm. the existence of these things. Did we see that play out again? Oh, yeah, of course. But, you know, whenever things like this happen, you can expect that debate to flare up mm-hmm. time and again. And obviously, it's uh, very polarizing. Yeah. Um, everyone has their own thoughts and opinions on it. For one, you know, you have groups like Peter talking very loudly to the cons of places like zoos and aquariums. And then, of course, there's the other side of the debate those that are talking about the really strong conservation efforts that places like zoos and aquariums can provide for, you know, endangered species. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack to that point. So I'm going to sort of come back to it a little bit later on. But the point that I'm wanting to make here is that if you've ever had, and I know I have in the past, a personal conundrum sort of as to whether or not you should or shouldn't go to the zoo, We might be worried about whether the animals that are living there are actually having like a really good quality of life. You need to have a bit of an understanding of how zoos are regulated and accredited to make a informed decision about if you're going to go and if so, which ones you're going to spend your money at. So can we paint a bit of a picture of those? Like what are the guidelines around zoos and aquariums in Australia? As a baseline, all zoos and aquariums must be granted a licence from their state and territory governments to operate. 
All states and territories in Australia have their own regulating bodies for exhibiting animals. Basically, these regulating bodies make sure that the zoos and aquariums are complying with the relevant legislation around exhibiting animals for people. On top of that, we actually have these new federal standards and guidelines specific to the welfare of exhibited animals that were endorsed in 2019. Okay. They sort of provide a basis for our state and territory governments to then develop their own legislation and enforcement or like strengthen what they already have in line with these guidelines. They're there to prevent poor animal welfare. So we're minimizing negative experiences. However, there is more that aquariums and zoos can do to make sure that they're providing the best possible care for their animals. And that's the process of accreditation. Right. So take us through this, Emma. What do we need to know about zoo and aquarium accreditation? So the accreditation process happens through something called the Zoo and Aquarium Association Australasia. That's a bit of a a mouthful. So I'm just going to call them ZAR from now on. Love that. Love it. Zoos and aquariums must become accredited to be members of this association. Becoming accredited is entirely voluntary. Right. There's nothing forcing a zoo or aquarium to become accredited. So it's it's open to any to apply. So it's all based on a principle called positive welfare, which goes beyond trying to minimize negative experiences in animals. For example, if you're starving, you want to minimize that with providing enough food so that your hunger is sated, right? Yeah. But that sort of only brings you up to maybe like a neutral level. You're feeding them enough. They're at a neutral welfare. And that's an okay life, but it's not great, is it? No. (laughs) So instead, you might go beyond that and say you're providing sufficient food, but maybe you're also providing a diet that the animal finds pleasurable or rewarding. So maybe it's really tasty. It's really Mm -hmm. nutritious. You're going to enjoy that a lot. And so cumulatively, you bring yourself up to a a neutral and then with those positive experiences, experience positive welfare. So how does the process of accreditation actually work? So to become accredited, ZAR members have to complete a self-assessment. And they do this part by using something that ZAR have created and it's their welfare assessment tool. It's based off of something called the five domains model, basically a science-based model to assess animal welfare. Okay. Four of these domains are physical. So they're looking at the nutrition, the environment, the health, and the behavior of the animal. And then the fifth domain is mental state. So the overall mental state of the animal that arises from these physical experiences. What does a welfare assessment look like in practice? At a zoo, for example, they would use a representative sample of the entire population of the zoo to assess them. You might have a tiger and the needs of the tiger will probably be similar, but not exactly the same as most big cats. So you can sort of do the welfare assessment with the tiger and then extrapolate that to the other big cats. And so they'd look at and assess the five domains for that animal. I mentioned before about providing enough food and a pleasurable diet, Mm -hmm. but it could also include assessing the opportunity to have positive experiences like giving them enrichment, like puzzle boxes with the food inside of it, 
maybe environmentally providing something that imitates what they would engage in in the wild, climbing structure or a complex environment that gives them the opportunity to use their brain and the opportunity to sort of display the repertoire of their behaviours that they would be using in the wild anyway. And then another important aspect of being a ZAR member is that they have to demonstrate that they're working towards sustainability and conservation goals. Once a zoo or aquarium is accredited, they have to be reassessed every three years to maintain that membership with ZAR. The thing that is standing out to me here, Emma, is that accreditation is completely voluntary. There's really nothing forcing them to step up. That's definitely a fair point. And I think if a zoo or aquarium chooses to go with, you know, ZAR accreditation, it really does show that conservation really factors into their practices. Sure. And I think this demonstrates a real cultural shift towards conservation in you know, zoos, for example, over entertainment, which was definitely the case Yeah. when they started specifically. To demonstrate that, we have now 70 ZAR members here in Australia, and this is across both zoos and aquariums. Sure. You know, like in any industry, you're going to have kind of like a bell curve of practices. You're going to have some extremely good and some not so good organizations. So the idea behind accreditation is it gives us, the visitors, some confidence that the place that we're visiting is on the right-hand side of that bell curve, is using best practices for the industry. So Emma, when it comes to conservation, can you give us an idea of what zoos, especially here in Australia, are doing in this area? ZAR actually leads their species management program. They coordinate over 100 breeding programs. And breeding programs are example of conservation. In these, organisations breed endangered species in zoos and aquariums to sort of build up a healthy population. So a good case study here is the Western Lowland Gorilla, which is found in several countries in Central Africa these gorillas are critically endangered because of, you know, hunting, loss of habitat and human diseases like Ebola. So what's happened here is that the captive population, their genetic diversity has been maintained through zoos and conservation reserves, exchanging and resettling individuals sort of across the globe. One example is a female gorilla called Yuska, who came to Melbourne Zoo all the way back in 1973. Wow. Along with um, a three-year-old male called Rigo. 11 years later, they had a male baby, which was actually Australia's first gorilla birth and also the first in the world to happen via artificial insemination. Wow. By the time that she passed away in August of this year, she had become a great, great grandmother. We have actually seen as a result of captive breeding programs that some species that have gone completely extinct in the wild and whose populations only existed in captivity have been bred up to populations where they could actually like reintroduce those animals back into the wild and establish wild populations again. So Sophie, circling back, you may have a personal conundrum as to whether you should or shouldn't be visiting a zoo. 
And there are people who will not visit zoos and aquariums full stop, and that's okay. But for those of us who do want to visit zoos, I think that understanding more about accreditation, like ZAR accreditation, maybe gives us more of a sense as to the types of organisations that are following the best practices. I think it just gives me, at least, peace of mind to know that I can go onto the ZAR website, I can look at that list, which zoos and aquariums are accredited, and make an informed decision about whether or not I would like to go there or not, whether I'd like to spend my money there or not. Emma Perfetto is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Emma's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Dave Stein. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. Thank you.